Welcome to Veterans State of Mind, guys. I'm your host, Garrett Jones. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining um, joining me on a conversation that I've waited a, a long time to have with someone that I really, really look up to. And uh, as always, I want to say thank you guys for making the podcast possible and um, allowing us to bring you these, these conversations. Um, the man we have on today... Um, He's a very gracious man, put it that way. He's been through um he's been through a lot of shit. A lot of uh he has a hell of a lot of combat experience. Um, you know, the kind of experience that a lot of us um have never got anywhere close to um in the in the war on terror, and we'll come on to that. Um but um I just want to uh, take a moment to just say that like I really appreciate not only the guests coming on the show, but you guys for for making it possible because and um for you guys uh, sharing posts, telling people about the podcast, for the messages that you send me, the the DMs that you slide into me, I, I really appreciate them, guys. Um, I got um, last night, got back from the studio last night. We had quite quite a late recording session here because the guest was um, on the on the west coast of America, uh, and I got back last night to a really nice message from one of you, and it was a pretty personal message. So I'm not going to go into it, but I just want everyone to know, you know, guys, we are a team. You know, we were a team, we are a team. Uh, no matter what branch of the military you're from, even the RAF, um, you know, we d- I do appreciate you all. And, and we're glad glad that you're here and listening. And same with our civilian listeners too. Um, before we get into today's podcast, I want to say thank you to Combat Fuel for sponsoring this episode. I would say that I'd never sell you anything that I wouldn't use myself. But to be honest, that's a lie, isn't it? If, if I was offered enough money, I would sell you lots cyanide. That is the absolute truth of the matter. But I do use Combat Fuel. Um, I use it and I love it. I use the pump supplements. And actually this week, I have started using their uh, pre-workout supplements. So they've got two. They've got pump supplement, which is to give you nice big juicy gains. But that doesn't really have caffeine in it. Well, it doesn't have caffeine in it. Um, And so it's better to use without giving you the nasty jitters and and, uh, all that kind of stuff that, you you know, some people I know are adverse to caffeine. Some people just can't use it. So the pump supplement's great for that. Uh, The pre-workout stuff, I have... Um, I can I can definitely tell you that I have been having some good results off it. I know when a pre-workout's good when um, I'm supposed to be having my rest between sets and I just go straight into the next one. So that is like the highest kind of accolade that I can give it. Also use the vegan protein. Uh, check them out, guys, over at Combat Fuel. Everything is is linked up um, in the show notes. So please check them out. Please do support the sponsors. Please do support our guests because they are giving up time to make this possible and obviously, without them, there is no podcast. So, let's get to today's guest. Captain Dale Dye is an American actor, technical advisor, radio personality, and writer. He's a decorated Marine veteran of the Vietnam War, and Dye is the founder and head of Warriors, Inc., a technical advisory company specializing in portraying realistic military action in Hollywood films. Basically, guys, if you've seen a good war movie, it's because Captain Dye is behind it. Um, he started with Platoon. That was the first movie work, worked on with the uh, with the award winning Oliver Stone, and then from there he's done uh, Saving Private Ryan, Pacific, Band of Brothers, basically all the best war movies and shows. A massive part of that is down to Dale. So without further ado, let's get to it. Please welcome Captain Dale Die. Dale, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks, guys. It's uh, it's a delight to be here and, uh, you know, reach reach your audience, which I hope is growing and blossoming. It is, and, and we have listeners on both sides of the Atlantic. We have a lot of Marines. We've actually had, to be honest, I think the Marine Corps make up the largest contingent of guests that we've had on here. <laughs> well, you know, we, we are our own best publicity agents, so I guess that's fine. <laughs> a lot of Marines seem to end up in... Um, 
end up in these like kind of like limelight positions, either by, by social media or uh, or in the arts. Or um, there's you know we got UFC, we got a, a Marine UFC fighter that's going to come on. Um, you cer- so you guys certainly uh, certainly get around, and um, I've told you this before, and um, that I I, re- I really see similarities between uh, grunts from the Marine Corps and British uh, British infantry. I just find the two are just uh, you know two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I've I've been privileged to work with uh, Royal Marines and uh, Royal Green Jackets and uh, and a number of, uh, of British formations. And I've always found them um, ter- tremendously professional. Uh, even even the youngest squatty has an idea of what he's doing and and what he's about, and uh, and he studies and and uh, and he he's a professional while he's being a professional. And and I really respect that. I think one of the reasons as well is that um, you know in the Marine Corps and the British Army, we it's like you have to make do with less. You know, be that kit, or you know, it's it's kind of like the chip on the shoulder mentality is part of it. But also, you know, it's um, you know, in in war things never go the way they're supposed to. So when you're training with half the kit and you're in the wrong place and stuff at the wrong time, yeah, you know, it's it's typical uh, a dollar job on a dime budget. I mean, is is what we say, and and uh, and you guys have have been doing that for years and years and years. Uh, I get it. And, and I think one of the neat parts about uh, being uh, a Marine or a, a British soldier uh, facing that sort of situation, I think one of the neat things is you always have to learn to innovate. Mm. You always have to learn to improvise. Uh, and, and I think that keeps your mind active. And, and not only that, very often leads to some of the most brilliant solutions. <laughs> you know, Roddy the Squatty comes up with, with this absolutely brilliant little deal. And and it solves the problem for the regiment and for the you know the the, the division at large. So uh, I I think that's good. I think it's good not to have all that kit, all that gear, all the time. Figure out how you're going to do it without. Because as you say, no great plan survives the first round downrange. And uh, and and I can tell you as a combat veteran that that's damn sure true. <laughs> Well, well, I want to come on to your tours and stuff, but I just want to kind of well, what you said there as well. I think is just that that just goes for life in general too. You know, your plans are not going to survive in life, and if you've had everything handed to you in life, then the moment you hit some adversity, you're going to struggle. I've always said, uh, and and I truly believe this: if if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. You know, because <laughs> they're they're bound to go swirling toward the crapper at some point. And you have to be resilient, you know, and, and, and our military service teaches us that, uh, you know, adversity is, you know, it's too bad. It's unfortunate that we can't have everything we need and, and everything work out the way we want to. But it's not going to destroy us because we've, we've faced it before. We, we get it. We'll continue the march. What was your childhood like then? In the in, and did it, did you did you start learning these things? You know, early as a, as a kid. Where where did you grow up and and what kind of can just like what was it like? Well, I, I was a rural kid. Uh, I grew up in uh, the, the central south central part of the United States in Missouri, um, southeast Missouri, and uh, it was um, you know a, a fairly typical childhood. We had some family. Bumbles, uh, divorce, and so on and so forth. Um, but I always had that vision that there was something bigger and better over the next hill. 
and and I became enamored. I started reading early, and I became enamored with books, uh, Tregascus's Guadalcanal Diary, and a number of other things that I remember. And and uh, and I said, you know, uh, I I want to be that guy. I want to hear those bugles blow, and I want to see those flags waving. And so I begged to go away to military school. And at the and at a very tender age. Uh, uh, I was able to attend uh, military schools. And so uh, from my elementary education through my high school education, I was in military schools, uh, which I think was, was classic. I mean, you weren't, you weren't worried about getting laid all the time and chasing <laughs> girls and so on and so forth. So you, so I guess that's okay to say, I'm going to say it anyway. So, Oh, you were, but there's nothing you could do about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you focus, and and I and I got a really, I think, a classical education, uh, and I I wanted to go. Uh, I mean, I knew at that point that I was going to give my life to service in some form or fashion, and I wanted to go to our United States Naval Academy uh, at Annapolis. But while I was in school, I played a lot more sports. Uh, I was a big baseball, football guy, uh, and didn't spend enough time in the classroom. And so when I took the entrance exams uh, for the Naval Academy, which would be sort of sort of the equivalent, uh, you know, the Sandhurst level uh, yeah. education, uh, I flunked it. I failed it. Uh, I failed it not only once, but I failed it twice. And, uh, and, and at that point, there was absolutely no money for college. I mean, in, in those days, uh, and I'm talking here about the very early 60s here, um, there was uh, there was no money for for college and scholarships weren't, weren't an easy thing to get in the United States in those days. And so, uh, you know, I was feeling, uh, I was sort of feeling sorry for myself around Christmas of 1963, um, sort of crying the poor ass and saying, you know, what, what, what's going to happen to me? And I'm, all my dreams are swirling toward the crapper as we talked about. And I walked by a United States post office, uh, and uh, outside the post office was this big poster, and it had a U.S. Marine in dress blue uniform, and he was lantern-jawed and steely-eyed, <laughs> and he was pointing a finger, and it said just one word, ready? And I said, you know, by God, I think I am. And I, I walked in and uh, enlisted in uh, January of 1964 uh, in the United States Marine Corps. And it's been sort of onward and upward since then. I, I will say this as well. I do think um, that the Marine Corps have the the best looking um, dress, the dress uniform. I'll say that. No question in anyone's military mind. Right? Yeah, on the record, that is a, <laughs> that, that is a fact. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to one of the, uh, mil- um, the Marine Corps balls, but that's another story. Um, where did you pick up? Those first copies of uh, books like Guadalcanal Diaries, where did you get your hands on those? I was a, a resident student at school, and I couldn't go home for holidays and that sort of thing um, like everybody else did. Um, and so I would spend my, my time haunting the libraries. Um, and, and I always loved to read. Uh, I, I read at an early age. Um, and, uh, and I just was fascinated with the printed word and, and the stories that, uh, that, that were told in those books. So where I found them was just wandering around in, in libraries. 
and I would find a title, you know, that seemed to have something to do with the military, like Run Silent, Run Deep, or Guadalcanal Diary, or, or uh, uh, The Naked and the Dead, uh, Thin Red Line, and, and, and I would grab those books and read them, and it did nothing but, you know, plant, plant the seed a little deeper in my mind. I mean, they must have been really recent at that time too, because I mean, I'm, I'm assuming these um, these books weren't published, you know, immediately after the war. So they I mean they must have been, you know, quite close on the on the on you know when the, when these books were coming out, you must have been getting them quite hot off the press. Yeah, I guess um, you know I'm talking here about the late fifties, I guess uh, middle to late fifties. So you know, World War Two had been. Um, there had been some some good books, I think, not not as many as there were later, um, but but there was enough there to to whet my appetite, you know, and and to convince me, um, falsely as it as it turns out, but to convince me that mm. that you know there was there was great glory in this, and and I could I could become a uh, an individual that that had a great life and and a and and a great life of service uh, if if i could only manage to do these things that i was reading about in the books so so it it um it was like a magnet it kind of led me in that direction yeah it's funny you mentioned the glory because it's, if you read thin red line before going to war and after going to war it reads very differently doesn't it it's the yeah, it it's the bit it it, a lot a lot of books do. yeah it's the bits that you pick out you forget the bit where everything's going wrong and people are dying and and then you just like um you know you just you pick out the bits that seem glorious and like let me ask you this do you think you were born to be a warrior i i have to say you know that's i don't know that i've ever really pondered that um but i'd have i'd have to say yes um, it, it's in me somewhere, guess it's, it's, um, I, I eat, literally eat it up when I am, when I'm allowed to, uh, to live that sort of rough life where, where things depend on me. And more importantly, uh, where, where people depend on me, where, where young men and women who are wearing the uniform depend on me to make the right decisions. And, and, uh, and that seems so comfortable, so right, um, with with very little anxiety about getting away from it. That I'd have to say, uh, yeah, I, I think I was I was born to the born to the cloth. Yeah, I think that's a, the the great answer because I always just think it's it's the same as a relationship, be a friendship, or you know, with a woman. When it's right, you know it's right. You just know. Yeah, you do. Um, and I think, and I think it's, and you know, we, we, there's, I would say, there's, you know, you have your camp soldiers, and then you have your deployment soldiers. That those are two different things as well. And it's like some people, I'm sure, are very happy marching up and down a square. Not for me, but there's other people. You know, you, you're happy being with your mates on, on on patrol. And yeah, and and you know, if if you're happy doing both, <laughs> uh, that's got to be that's got to be a signal. That's got to be a sign. That, that this is the life for you because any all aspects of it um, are appealing. Maybe not as equally appealing. I mean, if you're a field soldier, um, then you want to be out there in the field. You want to be rocking and rolling and, and living hard and, and, and having what to you is a great time. If you're a garret trooper, you know, a garrison guy, um, and you want to march up and down and, and you know, square bash all day long and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but you still enjoy it, um, then it's got to tell you, 
you know, you're you're the kind of guy that needs to be doing whatever the service asks you. I'll say this as well. I never enjoyed doing the marching up and down practice, but when it came to actually marching through a town or a city with bayonets fixed and you got the colors flying, fuck, there is no there, there's no better feeling than that. Absolutely, man. I know what you mean and and listen, if if you open up to it and you feel it and you hear that the power of those marching boots and a band is playing or you're singing and the colors are flying and the bayonets are flashing. Listen, man, we're all 10 years old at that point. And, uh, and, and the chest swells and the heart beats and, and, you know, because, because we are who we are, we, we will, we'll never admit it, uh, you know, at the, at the time. Yeah, yeah. So Dale, one of the things I was thinking about is, um, this just kind of just struck me is the end of the second world war to the beginning of the Vietnam war. That's only the same amount of time as the the war on terror from beginning to I'm not going to say end because it's still going that we're fighting now. That's so you 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 must have had when you came into the military then like did you come across guys who had fought in the Marine Corps Pacific campaign? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And more importantly for us um, and for um, uh, Royal Marines, uh, Korea mm. guys, uh, I, I was trained. I think I think in large measure, some of some of the knowledge and skill that kept me alive in Vietnam was imparted to me by guys who had fought in Korea. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I met and, uh, and spoke with uh, Marines who had uh, who'd fought on Iwo Jima and, uh, and Peleliu and, and Okinawa, some of the, some of the big fights of, uh, of World War II. Um, and they were always, uh, you know, we have, we have a tradition about passing uh, legacy and knowledge and tradition uh, from one generation to the next in the Marine Corps. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, and, and they, they did that. They, they told me, you know, it, it's one thing to tell war stories and, and we all get a kick out of that. Um, but they, there were things they were telling me that, that paid dividends uh, later on uh, when I had my own combat experiences. So um, you're right about uh, you're right about the length of the what they call a guat these days, the global war on terrorism. Um, it's it's an extraordinary um, it's an enigma. It's it's a I don't know where the hell to go with it, and I don't think anybody else knows where to go with it. We try to single out an enemy, you know, an entity, and you can do that. You can say, okay, worldwide terrorism, uh, uh, the Taliban. Um, Hezbollah, um, various um, uh, entities that, that that engage in terrorism, uh, but to fight them, you've got to locate them. Mm. You know, you got to you got to find out where they are, and that leads us to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and and some places in Africa, and so on and so forth. And that man, that's a that's a black hole. You just keep going down it, um, and and. And we can't we can't ask our our military forces to to fight an endless war. Um, we can't afford it. Uh, we can't afford it in in uh, monetary terms, financial terms, and we can't afford it in in personnel terms. Uh, and we can't afford it in morale terms because it tends to just you know there's no end in sight. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, and that's hard on any soldier's morale. I don't care who he is. Um, and so I think I think it's right um, to pull back a bit and say, you know, we've been doing this for 14 years. Um, 
let's let's do it this way. Uh, let's consolidate. Let's close forces on the homeland, uh, the UK, uh, the United States, and say, uh, look, we we've been proactive for 14 years. Maybe maybe we've uh, done some good. We think so. We hope so. But it is a recurrent problem. And so uh, the best way to beat it may be to be uh, a reactionary as to proactionary, uh, the best way to afford it and, and to keep it going. Uh, if I sound like a dove, forgive me, I'm not. Uh, no, no. Well, no, I, I, I don't think anyone would accuse you of that, or, and I hope they won't accuse me of that either. But it's, it's the same as anything. It's time and a, it's time and a place, and sometimes you've got to be smart. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You know. No, I, I, um, I, I would be inclined to agree with you. Um, I, I, I look at Vietnam and obviously now we have the benefit of hindsight with this but with Vietnam at the beginning there seemed to be a quite clearly defined aim which was to provide support to the South South uh, Vietnamese governments um, and it kind of grew from, it was kind of a mentoring role at first right and it, it kind of grew from there yeah it did and, and I'm not sure it, once again you, as you say with the benefit of hindsight uh, because I certainly wasn't thinking in those terms when I was there um, <laughs> but with the benefit of hindsight, we probably started out doing the right thing. Um, we started out um, trying to advise uh, the, the Vietnamese, uh, the South Vietnamese military and to uh, instruct them and to train them and to supply them and equip them um, and to let them fight that war. But we, we got sucked into uh, the vortex um, and I'm, you know, we'll, we'll be forever second guessing why we got sucked into the vortex. I think there was some some American hubris involved. You know, we can't afford to ever be uh, on the losing end of anything, and and we can't keep our fingers out of any pie that we've start, that we smelled the aroma. Uh, <laughs> and and so I think I think we may have let ourselves get sucked into that a bit. Uh, we should have just backed off and said, look, uh, we're gonna we're gonna train you. Uh, we're going to resupply you. We're going to equip you, um, and we'll be here to advise. Uh, but it's really your country, pal, and and you have to fight for it if you think it's worth it. I think that was our original approach to Southeast Asia in the late '50s and early '60s. But somehow it uh, it it grew like topsy. I think it's the same thing that happened to us in Iraq, for instance. You know, there we were, and and we did a quick job, and and we should have said, okay. Job done. Um, here's some advice. Here's some equipment. Here's some whatever you need. But we just stayed there and let ourselves get sucked into the vortex. I think. Yeah, and then it's one of those things. Then of um, it's uh, you start. Well, I tell you what. Anyone who's been at Vegas will understand this. You go to the table with you with oh, this is all I'm going to spend, and then that money goes, and you're like, well, I suppose <laughs> I can take out a little bit more, and then yeah. and then you're like, well, now I've got to make that money back. So you keep going back, and then before you know it, before you know it, you broke um, again in Vegas. Not that I'm speaking from experience. Um, so before you went to Vietnam for the first time, did you think that it was a just cause, um, or did you even care? That as, as as you know, as a young man, I didn't care much. Uh, frankly, um, you know, this, this was, um, I was, uh, I was concerned because I believed that Ernest Hemingway had it right. He said, war is man's greatest adventure. And like it or not, that's a fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I was, I, I wanted to be part of that adventure and uh, what adventure it was or why we were adventuring in it. 
uh, was secondary uh, to me, frankly, uh, as a young 19-year-old. Uh, but, but I did, I was aware. Um, and of course, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid along with everybody else. I mean, hey, this is, we're here to stop the expanse of communism throughout Southeast Asia and, and support an ally. I believed that. And I think to some measure, even, even uh, this far after the war, um, I, I comfort myself uh, in the belief that, that we were there believing those things and, and we were there with those things at heart. Um, and so we were doing what we thought was best. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. When I was at college, when they invaded Iraq, I, I thought this is a load of bullshit. Like the, the Iraq's not a threat to us, We're, you know. And um, but as soon as I graduated, I was like, right, let me get in the fight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I, so I didn't believe it, but I want to get in the yeah. fight. Um, and but like you said, like there might be some overarching um, reasons behind it that might be a little nefarious in nature, maybe. But that doesn't mean there is a person on the ground. You're not trying to do the right thing, you know. Um, and I'm sure, like I'm, I'm saying it with American troops, British troops in Iraq. I'm sure it was the same in Vietnam. You're trying to do the right thing on the ground. Um, you might be facing an uphill battle, but you know you're not. You know you're, you 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 do believe that there's the good side of the thing, and I think that's kind of always the tragedy of these things. Is is like Iraq. You know, I I I don't think we were right to go there, but once we were there, there's a great opportunity to make something happen, and then you know you end up making a big of a mess of it. And I think that's like the kind of the big tragedy. Um, when you know when you when you first went out to war, did you? I suppose you volunteered to join the Marines. Did you volunteer to go to Vietnam, or was it just the unit you were with? It was just the kind of came up in a like. No, no, no. I I wanted to get there as as quickly <laughs> as possible. Um, and and the war had sort of escalated. I I enlisted in January of nineteen sixty four, um, and um, and the war really began to get serious about sixty five sixty six. And, and I couldn't get orders to go uh, until about 1967. And, and when I did, of course, you know, I, I, I went right at it. Uh, I probably should have had some second thoughts because the next year, Tet Offensive happens and, and, uh, and it was a mess. But I, I, I thought then, and I still think, as, and, and I think if, if there's ever a, a, a truth that the, us combat veterans share, it's this. If, if you experience close combat in the infantry uh, or armor, for that matter, uh, some, somewhat, some, somewhat, something that gets you within bayonet reach of the enemy, what you're going to see is the absolute best of mankind and the absolute worst of mankind. And I think that puts a parameter on everything else that happens in your life. You've seen it. You've seen guys be the absolute biggest assholes the world has ever known. And you've seen some of the greatest heroes the world has ever known. And, and I feel privileged to have observed that. And I often point it out to, to other combat veterans. I say, listen, man, it, it may have been tough and it may have been hard. And you may have lost an arm or a leg and, and, uh, and you may be bearing the psychological scars, although that's to some extent, I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that whole uh, genre, but but uh, I, I think it's important to understand that, that you had a unique human experience. Sure, it changed you. Sure, it scarred you. But that but but you wouldn't be human if it didn't. And and I think I think we need to, those of us who've survived it 
need to think about that. We need to think that, you know, we, we were actually privileged to observe the human, to observe mankind at its best and its worst. Yeah. And I, I think we'll, I'd love to, I want to talk about writing later in the podcast, but I think this is why so many of us want to go on and write as well. Yeah. And, why, and why we, I, why I think we make good, why I think we make good writers because we've actually seen shit. But um, yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying as well about the, the whole adventure thing is even now, like I'm thinking, you know, I'm putting myself in your position at that point and I'm thinking like, God, of course you'd want to go. Like you probably wouldn't be able to live with yourself if, if you didn't. The idea of missing out on that big, as you say, like this great adventure. Yeah. Um, you know, people, I'm sure, I'm sure most of our listeners will get it. We have a lot of veterans listening. We have a lot of younger people listening who are in the same position right now. I get messages all the time from kids who are like, oh, I wish I'd been around from Afghanistan. I'm like, look. Stick around. There'll be yeah. something else. Like if <laughs> you'll you, get your shot. Yeah. yeah, you'll get your shot. Every 20 years, there's usually something that pops up. At least every 20 years, there's a big show. So stick around. You might be a sergeant major when it happens, but you'll get your show if you uh, if you stick around. Um, when you first got to Vietnam, what was your first kind of? What was your first impressions of it? I always think those first that first couple of days when you're in a in in a theater of war is always kind of like sticks with you. Yeah, it's you know. It, they can prepare you. They can, you can, you go to the lectures and you read the little pamphlets and the little handouts about the culture, but, but it's culture shock. It was culture shock in Southeast Asia for me. It was culture shock in the Middle East for me uh, later. And, uh, and you, and you remember things that, for instance, uh, the smell, smells are so different and, and humans are so sensitive to smells and, and uh, the environment, the heat, uh, the wet heat of a jungle is, uh, is extraordinary. And, and you look around and, and some of the areas where you are, now it probably wasn't that way with you in Iraq and Afghanistan because, you know, a pile of sand is a pile of sand. But in Southeast Asia, you have these marvelous rainforests and triple canopy and, and you'd get up on a, on a hill and look out over that stuff, and it's it's God's green world. It's it's absolutely uh, beautiful. Um, and and then you 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 say, well, how why how can a war be going on underneath all of this? And uh, so so the impressions uh, were, were, came flooding in, the visceral impressions. Uh, and then you begin to meet the people, and um, and you can't avoid it. Because, you know, we're the big, rich Americans with candy and cigarettes and so on and so forth. So here they come. And 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 I thought at the time, you know, they don't look like me and they don't talk like me and they poop in the streets and, and so on and so forth. Sounds like a rack. <laughs> yeah, it's basically. Uh, but the more you the more you observe, you see the same sort of human foibles that that uh, that everybody else has and i think that's another healthy lesson uh, you know they may look different but it, it, if they're human beings in large measure they're going to do what human beings do yeah and i think uh if you know if we'd grown up there we'd probably be shitting in the street um it's just you know that's it's, right, it's just sure. where you're growing up um one of the, i was gonna say in, in afghanistan you'd be surprised in some of the terrain in afghanistan along the green zone of the rivers was breathtaking and, and to what you were saying 
some nights there'd be the sunset, this fantastic pink, like bright, vivid pinks. And you'd go, oh, yeah. God, yeah, why, why is there a good, how is there a war going on here? And then it would usually start somewhere in the distance. The, the, the tracer would start to arc up somewhere. Yeah. And then you hear that. And then you're like, oh, I fucking love this. Because <laughs> when you're not on the end of it. Rock and roll. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, there's that to it. Um, one of the most iconic, and I, I do want to talk more in depth about movies later, but just I want to just say for now, because we're, while we're on the subject of coming into the country, one of the most iconic moments of the movie Platoon that you, you worked on is that first scene, I think, with the Hercules. You know, you got that drone of the engines and the ramp comes down and you got these rabbit in the headlights guys and then you've got the salty ass veterans who are getting off the flight. Is that some did you have a similar kind of thing to that coming coming off? Yeah, sure. I mean I, I think anybody who who goes through an aerial port coming into a combat zone or going out of a combat zone experiences something like that. I mean it's in the nature of us soldiers you know, to harass the hell out of the new guys and, <laughs> and, uh, and because it's entertaining. It's fun. Um, you want to hear a little secret about that opening scene? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Do, do you remember the body bag that's being carried? Yeah. I'm in that body bag. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. we, we, uh, when we were shooting it, we put a dummy in there, and it, it didn't look at all. It wasn't right. It didn't carry right. Hmm. Uh, didn't carry like dead weight that, that you carried and I've carried so I, did, I just said to the director, I said, wait a minute, let me fix this. And I threw the dummy out. I got in the bag and had the guys uh, carry it. And then you get the, the human lumpy form. Yeah. So the guy was like, is that what I think it is? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, that is just, I think that's just such a powerful scene for people. It's really gripping scene. We'll, we'll come back to it. But I just think that those moments when you, um, and it's that smell, like, this is what you don't get in the movies, is like you said, the smell. Yeah. So I imagine Vietnam and, and Iraq probably have a lot of sm- uh, common smells, i.e. shit uh, and aviation gas, aviation gasoline. Those two things, those. Yeah, cordite, yeah. aviation gas. Um, yeah, absolutely, man. And, and that's, that's that wisp of combat. You know, that's that thing that, uh, you know, sometimes it almost sexually stimulates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's what it is. War boners are a real thing. Uh, what, what, <laughs> what, was the, what was the first time, did you did you experience indirect fire as your first kind of like taste of enemy fire or, or was it out in the bush? Or, did you, you know, so what was well, that? It was, it was out in the bush. Um, it was a patrol um, which uh, was, as usual, you know, you take the high ground. And, and we were trying to climb up this hill and I was relatively new um, and, and hadn't been shot at. You know, I'd heard it in the distance, but it, it wasn't uh, wasn't really happening to me. And, and uh, uh, the North Vietnamese Army were dug in uh, on the military slope, uh, the military crest of this hill. Uh, and when I say dug in, I mean, these, these guys were expert at it. You couldn't see them. Uh, and we were right up on them. And they opened up, and uh, it, the machine gun was engaging troops to my left. We were kind of advancing online, as you as you tend to do, and cut two guys down immediately. And I jerked over and looked and saw them go down. And that's the first time I, I really learned uh, that, that when you're hit, it, it's a projectile piercing your body, and you turn inward. To it. You don't throw your arms back and, and do the funky chick. And, <laughs> and, and frankly, it, it just, it just looks like somebody cut the strings, you know, and they drop. 
And uh, I shouted something. I can't remember what the hell it was. It was probably something about machine guns up or something, you know, trying to trying to get some order into this chaos. And and the bastards turned the machine gun on me. <laughs> and I mean, it just chopped trees and leaves. And, and you, it was the first time I had ever heard um, that snapping sound, you know, that, that went around breaks the sound barrier right next to your ear. That's how you know it's close yeah. when you hear that. Uh, and of course, I dropped like a bad habit, you know, and, and stayed there for a while. But we, we kind of got chewed up until we were able to uh, maneuver around in the flank of this thing and get a, get a grenade into it. But I remember, I remember that, that evening. I mean, I, I emptied a magazine or two. I had no idea. I was firing at muzzle flashes. Uh, no idea whether I hit anything. Later on, uh, I, I had that personal uh, experience, and I'll tell you about that when we get around to it. But after it was over, and you know, we were we were evacuating casualties, and uh, and the corpsmen were up treating the wounded, and, and uh, you know, I I was sitting there, and I checked a few people to see if everybody had everything, and if you know, redistributed some ammo, and did what you do. But I remember thinking, Jesus, you know, I, that's combat. I, I just got my first taste of combat. And then I tried to say, okay, well, how do you feel about it now, sport? You know, how's your... Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, it became clear to me that all of those bugles blowing and flags waving and that sort of, that wasn't quite the deal. Um, and that it was much more serious and much more gruesome and much more deadly. Um, but I, I didn't resented. I didn't like it. I mean, I didn't not like it. I, I said, okay, this is, this is the deal. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm involved in. I better get used to it. I better get good at it if I'm going to survive. So that was that, that first real experience, uh, climbing that hill northwest of the Da Nang area, which is northern part of, uh, of South Vietnam. Uh, was probably uh, that that alarm clock moment, you know, that wake up moment. Oh yeah, and that that's a hell of a taste as well to see people going down in a burst of fire the first time you ever get shot at. I mean, but apart apart from going, I've always felt really sorry for people who first time they get shot at, they get they get hit. I mean, we we all there's people there's people out there that that's happened to the first time they've ever heard the bullet. <laughs> yeah, last fifteen minutes, your your combat experience lasts fifteen minutes. I know a guy like that, literally. At Quezon, uh, literally climbed off the the 130, which was still rolling. I mean, they they didn't stop at at uh, Quezon. They just lowered the ramp and you ran off. And this guy had been in country for two days uh, in Vietnam. They policed him up and sent him. He was an artillery forward observer, and they they sent him up to Quezon. And he came running. I I was watching from a trench. He came running off of that thing the minute they started pumping 82 millimeter mortars in on trying to hit the airplane and it got him and we got him back out on the oh same God. airplane. He literally, he literally was there five minutes, you know, tops. And you know what the military's like? He'd never hear the end of that no, no, from his yeah. friends. And, and I, I still talk to him and I still remind him every time. How was your combat tour? How was that five minutes? <laughs> My my friend Alex, who was our first guest on this podcast, um, our first real patrol in Afghanistan, he got shot through the neck, 
And then he, so he went back, he got patched up, he came back a couple, like six weeks later. Next patrol, he got oh, blown up. <laughs> Basically, we, we, we used to call it, we call him Pink Mist. Um, that was his, that was his nickname. <laughs> and it's like, I know it's, but it's that dark humor though. I think, like, I, I do genuinely think it's hilarious that he got shot through the neck and then blown up. I think, okay. I mean, all's well, ends well. He's a quarter magnet. Yeah, I get well, it. Well, we used yeah. to have a special, like, so in the patrol, we'd have, uh, you know, we, we'd have multiples in the patrol. We'd have the so order march would be first multiple, second multiple, and pink mist about 500 meters behind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, like, that, so that you were saying in that story then, there's a couple of things that kind of came out to me. Um, one of the things was high ground and the importance of it. And the other was that you then took the enemy by flanking them. Those are just two. Constants of war, which will probably never go away. And any young listeners now learn about taking the high ground, learn about using the high ground, learn about flanking. I mean, that's it's just when you boil it down, war is very simple, isn't it? You know, you know that's absolutely right, guys. I mean, I I've talked to guys uh, who fought Iraq, Afghanistan. I've I've had I've experienced it in Southeast Asia. I talked to guys in Korea. I talked to guys who fought in World War Two. And they all say the same damn thing. You know, it it always amounts to the high ground is crucial because you control the terrain and you can do plunging fire and all that sort of thing. They know it and you know it. So it's going to boil down to taking the high ground. Either they have it or they want it. Either they're on it or you're on it. And 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 when you and rather than advance directly into fire, I mean, I think we put an end to that in, you know, Passchendaele in, in World War One, but rather than go directly into it, maneuver for the flanks. You know, basic it's fire and maneuver. Try to pin them down, distract them with a base of fire, and then maneuver to the flanks where you can you can hit them where they ain't. So yeah, that's universal constant of infantry combat. I think. Yeah, I mean, and even those days as well when they were. Um you know, even in the trenches, the idea would be that you got a foothold in the trench and then roll the trench up, you know, from, from one end of the trench to the other. So basically yeah, yeah. working from the flank then, it's so, you know. Well, they finally figured that out, but it took them a couple of yeah. years to, to figure it yeah. out. I mean, God, I tell you what, it's, um, I, actually, let's digress for a moment because it's something I want to ask you later on, but this might be a good point. If there's one war you didn't want to be involved in, which would it be? And if there was one war that you could... Um, that you could have you could have gone and experienced which one which one would they be well i think um i think i would have liked to because it's uh, sort of my era i think i would have liked to uh, been in the pacific uh, with the marines in, in world war ii that area fascinates me uh, and i've i've been there i've i've crawled the caves on peleliu and and walked the ground on bloody ridge on okinawa and so on and so forth and it always puts me in a little bit of a dream state so I think if if I had my choice, I'd I'd want to do that one. I'm I'm not sure about the one I wouldn't want to be um, involved in. Uh, World War One, I, I I get it, but by the time the U.S. got involved, uh, you know, 1917, 1918, you guys had already been at war over there for three years, and, and uh, it had been a bloody stalemate, and conditions were terrible, and so on and so forth. So so that would have been a bad one. But I think, I think least likely that I would want to be involved in was the American Civil War. Oh God, yeah. Um, that you know, I've I've studied that a bit and and walked some battlefields and so on and so forth. And that was that was brutal, brutal on both sides. 
and and we didn't know enough about war. We were still coming off the you know the Victorian age of, of everybody in a file and and uh, and fire in advance, and and it was so unsophisticated, relatively speaking, um, that that the brutality just emerged. And I think, although no war is any less than brutal, I think, but. Uh, but that one, that one would be one I'm, I'm glad I missed. And I mean, everything about that war just sounded miserable. Like, you know, you, they had sea, you know, you still had sieges. You had, they, they had, they had trench warfare to, you know, to a large extent. Sure. Um, yeah. Artillery, lack of food. Um, and then the fact as well that you're killing someone that looks like and speaks like you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that might have been your buddy, like, you know, so, um, yeah, or your family, you know, it could be your cousin or your brother. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that kind of, I, I, I agree. And I gotta say as well, it's, it's, I'm actually, it's refreshing to hear you say that you would, you know, the, the involvement in the Pacific campaign, because I can say that to my friends who are veterans, cause I've always thought, so my grandfather, he was on Lancaster's in bomber command. I would love to have been up in a Lancaster with my granddad. Put me on the mid gunner. I would have loved that. And people say, well, you're insane because your chances of coming home. I don't care. Put me up there with my granddad. I would have fucking loved it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. I get it. And, and, and that's perfectly understandable to me and probably most, uh, most of us who have uh, family veterans. Uh, although, you know, listen, uh, that all aviation thing that your granddad did, in particular, in things like the Lanks and and uh, and the RB17s, and um, man, I always thought I had a guy tell me one time uh, when I was uh, being all starry-eyed about aviation, and I was looking at at the planes flying over, and and I was down in the mud and the blood and the beer, and and, and I said it was, it was some officer that I was hanging around, and I said. Uh, Geez, you know, I I wish I could I wish I could be a pilot. I wish I could be up there. And and uh, this this officer said to me, he said, "Doc, how tall are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm about six one, sir." And he said, "Yeah. Well, you stick with the infantry because if you get hit, you have six feet one inch to fall. <laughs> if they get hit, mm, yeah. they got about twenty twenty thousand feet to think about it before they crash." And, and that kind of disabused me of wanting to be with your granddad in a lank. Yeah. Oh yeah. I just, I just, one of the things that, you know, when we used to go onto operations into Basra city, you know, we'd be, especially if you were going to be the lead platoon, you're up, we on, we had the warrior armored fighting vehicles, which are like the Bradleys and you'd be, you'd all be in a line before heading out and you'd stand up on the top and you'd look back at the line of armor and we had challenger tanks in front. And I'd, you know, like you said, I'm not going to lie, I had a war boner in those days. I was like, this is fucking incredible. And I always thought, what must it have been like to see these fleets of ships and aircraft and the scale of the Second World War, I think, is what really kind of I find so compelling about it. To have seen an air, like the sky above you, filled with aircraft. Like, I can't get my head around it. No, no, it's, and it's, it's, the word is thrilling. You know, you you look at that stuff. You see the tanks rolling, and and you see the landing craft coming in, and you see the ships at sea with guns banging away. And and uh, if if you if you don't think at that moment that you're involved in something monumental, then you're brain dead. I mean, <laughs> those and and that's that experience I'm talking about. And you're talking. About. Uh, those those things will color the way we think. They'll color our memories. Um, 
and influence who we are for the rest of our life. And and with that as well, I just think, you know, most wars are a black, or, or, or sorry, they're a grey area. You could argue one way or another. If it, the Second World War just as just a war yeah, black and white. as you will ever find. And you can look back on that for the rest of your life and go, oh, I was involved in putting an end to the concentration camps. I was involved. I was this. a good guy. Yes. They were yes. the bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's every other war. It's always like, well, you're a good guy depending on whose side you see it from pretty much. But that, like with that one, definitively, you can say that. But yeah, I agree. It's just a skill. Hey, that's that's the reason we keep doing World War II movies. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a clear good guy, bad guy guy's situation. Um, the drama is inherent. Um, and then you start messing around with um, with Vietnam, you start messing around with Iraq and Afghanistan, and who's the bad guy, you know, and, and who's the good guy? And, and uh, we know, yeah. because we were there. So how, how did that feel then being in Vietnam, because you'd been weaned on um, movies and books of good guy, bad guy? Um, when did it get to the point when you were in Vietnam where you were like, well, hang on a minute, I'm not sure <laughs> about this bill of sale here, if this is exactly what I was told? I, I didn't I didn't have that. Uh, right. it, the Where I was, way up north, uh, the closest uh, sector to North Vietnam, to the enemy territory, um, we fought, for the most part, we fought North Vietnamese Army, guys who had come down to fight. So we, I didn't, I didn't experience a lot of that, you know, little guy in black pajamas and the conical hat that, that was way south uh, of where I was. So I didn't, that confusion wasn't there. I saw the black and white, they're black, I'm white or vice versa. I'm good. They're bad. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that confusion didn't rain on me. Um, It did later in the war about my third tour. Um, when I was a little more senior and I began to see some of the, the, the friendlies, the South Vietnamese, um, and, and too, too many of them had, had gone to parade rest and said, well, let the Americans fight it. And, uh, and then I began to, then I began to say, wait a minute, uh, who's the bad guy here and who's, who's the good guy. But that was much later in the war. That sounds that sounds like a familiar story as well. People that sit, people sitting back and letting the Americans, the Brits, do the the fighting in their own country. Um, so go, to go back to um, to what when you first went to Vietnam, what was what was your first role on that on that first on that first tour, tour up in um, up 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 in Da Nang? I was a brand new squad leader in an infantry in an infantry platoon. Yeah, right. Sorry, and, and so so. What, what when you when you went in there? Did you deploy as an entire unit, or did or was it the whole? Was it that rotation? One one guy comes in, one guy comes out, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, later on, um, we originally in in the nineteen sixty five era, uh, the Marine Corps was sending uh, units. Uh, they'd stage them on Okinawa and then send them down through the South China Sea, and and the unit would land as in in total. And then we came up with this one-year tour, or in the case of, uh, of Marines, 13 months combat tour. And we started doing individual replacements uh, in and out. And that was a terrible scheme. Uh, I, was, I was delighted to see that we didn't continue that later on in, in conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. So we moved units as units because they had trained together. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible system, that individual replacement system. And I'm not sure why we did it. It never made sense to me, but there it was. Yeah, I've never really understood. Well, I've never really come up with how they 
good explanation behind that. It's never really, never, never, never really seemed to make sense. And there's just so many, so many um, downsides um, to the to the whole thing. Um, you know, it's a it's it's a real one. It's a head scratcher. It probably made sense on somebody's leisure somewhere. <laughs> it's basically some, some politician figured it out that that would be good. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the case. So, um, was it your first? So, your your first tour. What year was the first tour? Then let's just. Let me just try and get my head around what years you were in country. Okay, yeah, that was '65, uh, which I, I did. A, I did a couple of months uh, there, having done most of my overseas time uh, on Okinawa, and then I, I got a change of specialty, um, and uh, left the infantry and became uh, what was called a Marine Corps combat correspondent. Um, and and the it was. It, a funny job, and there were just a handful of us that, that did it. But the idea was that we accompanied the infantry, um, and they called us JARs, J-A-Rs, or just another rifle, which is essentially what we were. But we had this little uh, auxiliary mission, this little secondary mission of interviewing a guy and, and doing a little story about him in combat, that sort of thing. Uh, and the weird thing about it was that we ended up on the line all the time because there were just so few of us and we had to cover so many outfits and, and we had to run toward the sound of the guns all the time. And it got a lot of us shot, got a lot of us uh, blown up and killed. And, and uh, But then that's, that's the nature of the beast. What I liked about it was that I, I got to see so much of the war. As an infantryman, you, you tend to see the what we call assholes and elbows, you know, you see, you see the back of the guy in front of you until, you know, the, this, the fight starts. But, but when I was, when I was moving under my own volition, when I could decide what to do and how to do it. And, uh, and, and my only parameter was be there, you know, don't, we don't want to hear about this. We want you to experience it. Then, then I really got a look. I got to look at what was a good outfit, what was a bad outfit, uh, why they were good, why they were bad. And I gained an enormous amount of experience, which stood me in great stead later on. I got to say, I am totally envious of that job. It sounds incredible. It, it was. To be able to go like, oh, there's an operation going on here. I think I'll go and like to go and see what's going on there. Like that sounds there you go. amazing. That sounds amazing. Um, and then to, and to get to write about it too. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's, I, I can't think of... Um, I honestly can't think of a job I'd, I'd rather do in a in a in a war zone. And, and you were never bored. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you know, uh, the life of an infantryman is uh, a good good three quarters of the time you're bored, and that's the reason you invent weird stuff to do. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but in that job, listen, I mean, you were never bored. Um, you you had to go. And, and when there's only a handful of you to do it, uh, there's always someplace, somebody's in a fight, and here you go. Here's a, th- okay, there's a couple of weird ones here. Is one of them, so you mentioned the books that you read growing up. I read Michael Hur's Dispatches growing up. It was one of my favorite books. And you were actually mentioned by name in that book, which is yeah. really weird for me yeah. to now ha- be able to have this conversation. I'm weird in a fucking awesome way. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and, and you know, Michael and I got along. I think we were both early proponents of what you would call gonzo uh, reporting, gonzo journalism. You know, be there, experience it, and then describe it. 
don't don't stand back and observe, you know, be involved in the thing. And Michael was that kind of guy when when he was straight, which was not very often. You mean straight as in like um, not not on, on drugs or drinking? He, Mike, Michael had a he had a, a real taste for what we called uh, Cambodian red and Laotian green, which is marijuana. Um, and uh, I think that that influenced some of the stuff he wrote. Um <laughs> But uh, he he was that kind of guy. He he wanted to get involved and and he wanted to uh, to experience it. And he he experienced it bringing his own sort of cultural uh, proclivities to it. Um, he saw it as a rock and roll war. Those those books at the time. I'm sure I'm not the only one. There's there's probably a lot of War on Terror listeners um, to this who grew up on those kind of books. And so we'll have read about serial exploits. And I want to come on to Huey. Um, the other thing I have to ask you while we're on this kind of subject of is though, if, are you part of the inspiration or the inspiration for Joker in Full Metal Jacket, who is a combat correspondent? Yes, um, the the guy who wrote uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Gustav Hasford, was a lance corporal in our outfit. Oh, um, and we we knew him very well, and and he knew us very well. As I said, there was a handful of us, yeah, ten ten sure. people. Um, and so um, he he picked and chose uh, elements of all of us, and you know some people say, "Well, I'm animal mother," and <laughs> and, and some people say, "No, you're part of Joker," and and uh, but but we talked to him. Those of us who survived uh, talked to him uh, to Gustav uh, when the book came out uh, prior to the movie. And, uh, and, and he flat admitted it. He said, look, I was, I was just picking up weirdness from you and weirdness from you and, and some strange thing from you and put them all together. So there's a little bit of all of us, uh, in, in Joker, I think. That's, that's, that's awesome. What, what's that, what was that like watching? Um, I know I'm jumping around here at the moment, but I just, <laughs> um, what, what, what was that like watching Full Metal Jacket? It was uh, a bit of a jaw dropper because, um, you know, I I fought way. I was I was there in way uh, for for a good two weeks before I got wounded. And uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, is a brilliant director. Was a brilliant director, and uh, and he 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 did some interesting things. But in my view, as a veteran of of way and Ted of 1968, he he missed the point of that fight. I mean, it boiled down in the film to uh, an entire regiment of Marines chasing one female sniper, you know, through through a British, uh, just an old British gas plant, uh, which I think was out in Docklands or someplace. That, that yeah, yeah, it's uh, Isle of Dogs, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I enjoyed it because, you know, I had lived part of that. Um, but, but it was one of those things that I said, no, man, look, you, you don't get it. I've got to say, when I read up on um, the book, I forget the guy's name now, it's the Huey 1968 book, the big thick one that came out. I read that. Um, and when I was reading it, I was like, hang on, there's nobody going off in squads here looking for single female snipers. This is not what, this is not what was going on. Um, you, you mentioned Michael Hur, like his kind of rock and roll war. I grew up watching Vietnam movies. Um, a lot of our listeners probably have. I can't see a Huey helicopter without thinking of uh, 
unfortunate son, you know. <laughs> and neither can act. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is like, was music really as much of a thing in Vietnam as like was was music really part of the profile of the war for you when you were there? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, uh, we we weren't obviously allowed to carry portable radios in the in the field and so on and so forth. That was a death wish. Um, but when we were in the rear, you know, when you'd pull back uh, in the rear, guys had stereos that they bought in the, the post exchange and and uh, and big boombox sort of radios, the early version of a boombox. Um, and we had AFVN, you know, good morning, Vietnam. You're listening to the American Forces Vietnam Network from the DMZ to the Delta. We had that stuff, you know, and and they played uh, they played that great music. And I think I think in large measure, we, we were in the rock and roll era. You know, I mean, it, it, rock and roll was kind of new at the time, a little, little bit uh, on the revolutionary side, on both sides of the Atlantic, by the way. And, and so uh, we were into it. It was a it was a way to um, kind of take yourself mentally out of the out of the mess. And it was uh, it was a big, a big part, I think. And and. People say for better or for worse, but I think it was fine. I, I enjoyed the hell out. I got to say, because when I turned up in a war zone and there's new, no music playing, I was a bit disappointed because <laughs> yeah. everything you've seen. I used to watch a Tour of Duty religiously as a kid. I thought I was Sergeant yeah. Zeke Anderson. You know, like, so just not far from where we're recording right now is a woods down here in a river. I used to be in that river patrolling, looking for Charlie. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so when I got out and there was no painted black plane when I got on a helicopter, I was very disappointed. Um, but I think, I guess at the time, though, you were going through something that's not really to be said for the war on terror. Is you were going through a mass cultural revolution was happening at home at the same time. And that was probably reflected in the ranks. Yeah, yeah, we were. And, and you know, the Marine Corps, because it's small and because it's extremely well trained and because it, it, it has a huge emphasis on traditions and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we sort of, we sort of uh, avoided that early in the war. Right. The Marine Corps did. The, the army, the American army writ large was suffering from it immediately because of the draft and, and so on and so forth. But, um, but, but later, uh, after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and, and, uh, and things of that nature, uh, the Selma uh, situation in Selma, Alabama. Um, we we were sort of um, that that whole problem infiltrated the ranks of the Marine Corps. So 69, 70, 71, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, we were we were feeling it early. I would say 65 to say 69. We weren't feeling. We observed it. We saw the army having all these race problems and so on and so forth. But the Marines were a cut above that, so we thought. And then uh, the the whole thing sort of came crashing around our, our ears. So that the problem was, in large measure, we were we were fighting a, a war that was that was relatively desperate against against some people that that uh, were skilled. You know, we're not talking here about. Luke the Gook in, a, in black pajamas. Uh, we're talking about serious soldiers. And so you, your, your life was forfeit all the time. And you relied on the guy next to you, you know, the, and, and he relied on you. And if you insert something in that, that sort of disconnects or, or puts a barrier between you, you've got a very, you got a second war. You got a very uh, serious situation. And I saw it happen 
I think the way I observed it was in, in outfits that were really well led, uh, that had really effective uh, NCOs and had really effective junior officers. I'm not talking about the colonel and so on. So I'm talking about the company commander and the, and the platoon leaders and the company gunnery sergeant and the sergeant major. And, and if, if those guys were really effective, and I don't mean scream and shout effective, I mean, if they were good, solid leaders who, who cared about their Marines, that we didn't, we didn't get so much of the, of the race problem in outfits that weren't good and outfits that were not blessed with that kind of leadership, you did get it. And it became really destructive. So it was more in unit with, uh, you know, units with draftees, people didn't want to be there really. Uh, the, the whole draftee question, I think, I think that certainly is true in the United States Army of the day, where a, a, a good solid block of the people who were there were draftees who had been drafted. The Marine Corps only only accepted a few draftees. So you always had that excuse of saying, listen, pal, stop bitching. You volunteered for this. You know, you could you could do that in, in the Marine Corps, whereas you couldn't uh, necessarily <laughs> in the Army. Yeah, I think I think the whole draft situation had a bearing on it. Although frankly, my friend, I'll tell you this, and and I'll I'll speak uh, for uh, the UK, if I can presume to do that, and I'll speak for the US, we should bring back the draft. And I'll tell you why. It was our countries, our, both of our nations, common denominator. It essentially uh, gave you a chance to experience things that you would never otherwise experience. It broadened uh, your, your horizons, if you will. You met people that you otherwise would never meet. Uh, and you got to know that they're just like you. They're they're people. You know, stop bitching about what color the skin is, and so on and so forth. You you do that. Uh, you do that with the military experience. Um, and and I think also it 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 imparts a sense of um, of paying back to your nation what your nation has given you. Uh, I think that we we're too self centered. You know, the, everybody comes out of their schooling thinking the sun rises and sets on my ass, you know, and and it doesn't. And if, if you serve in the military, you very quickly learn that there's something larger than yourself, something more important than yourself. And you can serve a nation and, and it gives you a sense of pride and a sense of it's it, it, it gives you a sense that um, that you have contributed. Uh, and you've sacrificed in order to make that contribution. So um, I'm, I'm a proponent. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And I would add on to that as well, that um, the military is great at taking you places where um, we'll, you'll go to by default are some of the worst places in the world. Yeah. And it will give you a sense of perspective for the rest of your sure. life yeah. and that you can tap into. And also, um, in this, uh, this is something that's more an issue now because, look, Back in you know where I'm from, if, if 50 years ago you worked in the steel mill or you worked in the coal mine, so it's not like you were getting off lightly physically. But now a lot of people will never know what their bodies are capable of, and they'll never know the pleasure you get from from working hard physically. Um, and I think that's a great shame. Um, now my my only cab my only my only thing with with uh, with the draft is I think that if you have a, a drafted body of men and, and women 
then you need to have people who deserve to be in positions of leadership to decide what happens with that group of people. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we have that in the UK. I'm not going to speak for the US. And that's an interesting point. It, it certainly is true. And it, it's certainly one of the downsides. Um, I, look, I, I think it wouldn't necessarily have to be military service. Exactly. Uh, you could you could get drafted into uh, social work. You could get drafted into uh, medical uh, work, you know, stuff that didn't need a great deal of education or expertise. But it's two years out of your life. And and if you if you uh, engage and keep your mind open and keep your heart open, those two years are going to be some of the most valuable of, you know, until the day you die. Yeah, Dale, I, I totally agree. I, I don't see anything but benefits from it. Um, I don't think it needs to, like you said, necessarily be military service, although I think people should have a choice to do that side if they want to. And I think that you, like, if you, you do this, like, I'm... I don't believe in giving when in the UK we, we we live in a fucking handout state where you never have to give anything and you get something. I think that does the person a disservice because they might have been brought up being told that that's okay. But if they actually realize that, you know, if you work for something, you get something, you feel better in yourself. So we, I don't, I think we're doing, uh, we're, the people that pay for it, you're doing a disservice to them. But the people that are receiving it without working for it, you're giving a disservice to them too. You, you're not treating them like a, a human being. You're treating them like a fucking hamster that like lives in your, in your house, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, we're kindred spirits, man. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, you know, this, the sense of entitlement you see it in the UK, and Lord knows we see it here in the United States. It just absolutely puzzles me. I mean, who the hell said the fact that you're either either you've come here uh, as an immigrant, and that's fine, uh, or you were born here? Where did it say in any of the follow-on paperwork, including your birth certificate, that you're you know somebody owes you anything? It doesn't owe you anything except an opportunity. It owes you a chance to make your own way, to make your own life and to succeed as you wish. As, and, and that's enough. You don't need to be, uh, you know, sucking off a nanny state for the rest of your life. And, and if you go through life that way, you'll never know the joys and pleasures of, of what you've done with your own hands and what you've created with your own mind, your own sense of hard work. Yeah, I, 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 I agree completely. I think that you know, people think if, if if you say, no, I don't want people to have handouts, you, you you have something against that person. Totally the opposite. I want that person to have the best life possible. Oh, and that means that means being encouraged to be fit. That means encouraged to work with other people. That means encouraged to, to go to bed at the end of the day and know, wow, I had a great day today because I worked and I, I worked with other people and I've given something and I've put something in the world and my life is not a fucking waste. Because people know deep down when their life is a waste. I don't believe that you cannot know. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you go to bed at night after that experience and you look at your wife or your kids and you say, you know, I provided for them. Mm. Uh, I did the right thing. And that's a that's a great sense of accomplishment. Uh, you know, you don't have to become a movie star or a rock musician or anything like that. Just providing for your wife and kids and doing it honestly and, and working hard to get it done. Man, that's a, that's a hell of an accomplishment. Guys. I want to give a quick shout out to the Royal British Legion because without them, there is no podcast. Royal British Legion, sometimes known as the Legion to its mates, is a British charity providing financial, social and emotional support to members and veterans of the British Armed Forces. Armed Forces? 
their British Armed Forces, their families and their dependents. Basically, guys, if it's charity stuff that you want, the Legion is the place to go and get it. They make the podcast happen, guys. So you might be thinking, oh, veteran charity, that's who I need to call when I'm having a bad day. Not necessarily. They're the people that make this podcast happen. They give financial advice. They help. Uh, they give grants to businesses getting off the ground like they did with our guest, Barry O'Connell. Shout out State of Mind Fitness. They do all kinds of things for all kinds of people. Well, they do it for veterans and their families. But there's all kinds of people involved in that. So head over to the Royal British Legion. They are one of the longest running charities in the country. They are, in my opinion, the best charity in the country and i'm not just saying that because they support the podcast um they just do so much great work in general guys best place to find out about it head over to britishlegion.org.uk or at rbl.org um sorry rbl.org.uk they got a bunch of different sites that'll all take you to the same place all the good stuff going on there also check them out on social media at royal british legion it's all tagged up in the show notes i don't know why i tell you any of these links you're not listening and putting them into your phone are you let's be honest but you can go down and click on the links in the show notes and on the social media posts please if you're going to do me a favour today, go and follow the Royal British Legion because it might help you. It might help someone that you know. You never know on these things, guys. So get off your asses and follow the Royal British Legion. And I say that with love. Right, let's get back to the podcast, shall we? It's a cracker. Let's go. Let's get back into it. So, Dale, you were involved in the Battle of Way City on your second tour, um, which I, I believe at that time was probably the most intense um, urban combat that, that had occurred for, for decades. Um, how, how did you how did you find yourself there? I had a sort of a second home with the Fifth Marines, and the Fifth Marines were at uh, were about eight kilometers uh, away from it when it broke out, and so uh, along with a unit of the First Marines, uh, we got sent into the city. Um, so um, it was a shocker. Um, I don't think anybody um, understood what house-to-house combat, what they call MOUT, Military Operations and Urban Terrain. By the way, I, I don't like that acronym. Uh, I invented my own. Uh, I call it FISH, uh, F-I-S-H, which is fighting in someone's house. Um, and, and we had no idea. I mean, uh, nobody really trained for it. Uh, I think the last you know, house-to-house sort of thing that went on uh, that the, the Marines were involved with was was probably a little bit of uh, the fight for Seoul mm. in Korea. And and nobody knew really what to do. It was one of those situations that we talked about earlier. We had to innovate. Um, and you quickly learned how brutal it is because uh, not only are there huge amounts of hidey holes and sniper hides and, and uh, everybody, the high ground involves the roofs of buildings. Uh, but, but I think uh, one of the things that, that came shocked me immediately uh, was that the the shrapnel effect of any round that you fire in an urban area is doubled or tripled because now it's blowing you know concrete shards and rocks and and pieces of brick uh, pieces of glass um, flying all over the place and you know they they were reluctant at first to use tanks because tanks get uh, what they call canalized they they tend to you know, they can't traverse 360 with, because they're in between two big buildings. Um, but thank God we had tanks uh, because it was the only way you could cross some streets. 
and the enemy knew how to how to do this. Uh, they came in and uh, and and set up automatic weapons on every avenue of approach. I mean, and so you'd walk down the down the street, and boom, you'd be grazing fire just coming coming down the area. And and we fought for about two weeks on the south side, um, which was a more modern sort of city. And then we crossed the Perfume River to the north side of Huey, and that was that was really the the uh, the uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court moment, um, because it was a a castle. Uh, we were essentially assaulting a a couple of hundred year old. Uh, it, it looked like the damn Tower of London, you know. It had it had. 40 foot walls that were 40 foot thick and and it had a moat that was you know 40 feet uh, and then it you know it had gates that were well guarded and, and uh, I swear it was like it was like the Tower of London think of attacking that and and that was really extraordinary that was strange and it was a meat grinder uh, it was bad enough on the south side but on the north side where you were fighting an enemy dug into those walls and and there was no no way around it you couldn't flank you couldn't do anything you just had to winkle the bastards out of there and the high ground were you know big overlooked towers and things and you had to get in that tower and get the hell up there and while well, he stood there and rolled grenades down yeah. so i suppose the question people would be listening like now is saying dale is what why not blow the towers up so what what was the reasoning behind that we eventually did end up blowing a few of those towers up when we got sick and tired of it. But but early in the fighting, um, there was uh, uh, I don't know I don't know there's an absolute order, but but we had heard that we were not allowed, uh, or to the extent that we could, we were not to damage the ancient imperial city of Hui. Uh, we were just supposed to find a way to kill the bad guys and, and leave everything else. Kill them, kill them politely. <laughs> That's right. Be very polite about it. Yeah. Wipe your boots and don't do any damage. And and I think I think uh, once we got some solid leaders up there who took a look at that and they said, "Well, that is the biggest crock of horse shit I've ever heard," and we're not doing it. Then we did begin to to hit them, but for a long time it was it was. Um, you know, we, we would have loved to just pump naval gunfire and pump airstrikes and pump artillery in there, but you just couldn't do it. And the other the other element, in particular with the air and artillery, was that you were so close that you couldn't pull back out of danger close for those big weapons. Yeah. You know, danger close shit sometimes is 500 meters. We didn't have 500 meters. You're lucky if you had 50 meters. And so it was very difficult to use those things, although we did. We figured it out. You know, we were able to, uh, mortars were particularly good, especially a good 81 crew can put it in a pickle barrel, and uh, and they were helpful. Uh, plus, we used a lot of recoilless weapons. In those days, we carried uh, the law, the M72, 77-millimeter uh, shoulder-fired disposable rocket, which worked very well in way. We had a, a weird thing that the Army had shit-canned and, and the Marine Corps picked up called the Antos. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's the M50 Antos. Oh, yeah, just just in that, um, just in the book. That's the one that, That's the one with the recoil. Well, sorry, I can't even six, say the word. Six recoilless <laughs> yeah. rifles yeah. mounted on, on a, essentially a Sher- M4 Sherman chassis. Um, 
and uh, they were terrific. The, but two things. First of all, you don't want to be the poor bastard who has to get out and reload them. That's not the that's not the billet you want. <laughs> and and secondarily, you want to keep an eye on the bastards because they're not keeping an eye on you. And when they fire those recoilless rifles, there's a huge backblast, and it'll cook you. So we, in place of airstrikes and, and artillery, uh, which we desperately wanted, I mean, nobody gave a big rat's ass about the you know the imperial city of Way if, if <laughs> we were going to get killed in it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it was, uh, you know, we we just couldn't use everything that was available to us, but we found a way. We innovated. Yeah. Um, what do you find? What What do you think about? I'm just something just coming to mind now. Just the the recent decision of the Marine Corps. Well, not recent decision. Recent actual uh, event of the Marine Corps getting rid of its uh, its tanks. Um, what would you think about that, given given that what you just said? I am not a big fan. Mm, no, me neither. Uh, I think it's a cock up, and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna bite us in the ass uh, later on. Look, uh, tanks and infantry, the army sees it one way. You know, big sweeping armor formations and so on and so forth. In the Marine Corps, we see tanks as an element of the infantry. Tanks and infantry work very closely together. So I don't I don't like that idea at all. I don't like that concept. I think it's a mistake. Uh, if you know if they're not immediately usable, fine. Uh, put them in storage, but don't give it up. Especially if you're going to get involved in a peer level fight, like with China or, or the Soviet or Russia. But but what bothers me even more uh, about what General Berger and General Berger is is the current commandant of the Marine Corps, who's who's uh, who's driving this train to, for, with all these changes. Uh, look, I'm an old war horse, and I get it. And so, and I can be accused of being recalcitrant about all of this, but I'm not. I'm trying to be a realist. Uh, what worries me more than the tanks, although that's a mistake, is we're getting rid of some tubed artillery. You know, five five and and uh, and uh, well, five five primarily, because that, that's what everybody shoots these days. Is the one so, so is that that's a one five five? Yeah, is it? That's the, the so the big the big the big shells. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and that's that's everybody's general support artillery piece these days. Um, so we're getting rid of tube, some tubed artillery, which I think is a terrible mistake. Uh, and we're reducing uh, the number of uh, line infantrymen that we've got by about a regiment. I think that's another mistake. We always end up bringing them back, um, and and you know we're we're just reinventing the wheel here, uh, and not to anybody's great benefit. I'm sure there's a shiny drone that they think will do all these jobs for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I just find it like when we were in a, when we were in Iraq, we couldn't go out without tanks. Like to say, you know, like and thank God we had them because they were the only things that could stand up. So what kind of like I just think, well, hang on, this is ten years ago. We're not, and so and then if you look back, you know, through through the last hundred years, you've needed armor for combat for any kind of combat operations. You've needed armor, and all of a sudden. When, you, when, when we're looking at, realistically, the biggest threat Russia has posed in a long time, the biggest threat China has posed, and we're getting rid of armor, that doesn't, I mean, I'm not a military genius, I'm a lance corporal, but it just doesn't seem, as someone that reads a lot of history, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, it doesn't, you know, and, and the, the thing that, that is amazing is, is we're saying, we the Marines are saying, oh, well, look, we'll let the Army come in and if we need heavy armor. Uh, first of all, the Army will come in if they've got the time and the inclination. 
Uh, they've got their own stuff to worry about. So, so just relying on them uh, is another one of these stupid joint forces uh, deals. It's the wrong. It's it's fuzzy headed thinking. Uh, so I I think that's wrong. Um, and ignoring the fact that if we do get into a peer level fight, uh, they're going to have tanks. How are you going to you know what are you going to do? You better have some anti tank weapon. It's it's a throwback to the. I, th I think the plan is prepare us to fight uh, in the littorals, uh, the littorals, the inshore areas. Prepare us to take chains of islands and then shoot at the enemy uh, navy with uh, rocket artillery, uh, smart bombs and uh, or smart shells and that sort of thing uh, from those islands that we've captured. Look, the U.S. Marine Corps has has a huge history and successful history of of uh, island hopping. We did it better than anybody else uh, in, in World War II. But I think this is a different situation. And I think, I think we're giving away um, tactical concerns. We're robbing the field commander of his ability to react to what the enemy does. Yeah, and also, Dale, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, in Hueyi when you got there, you guys had to learn on the fly. That's not the time to be learning, right? So no. if you are based in Camp Pendleton and you've got your armor and you've got your infantry and you've got, you can train together on a regular fucking basis. And you do. If you are like, hey, oh, hey, army guys who use different radios yeah. and who speak yeah. different language, that is not the time to be learning when you're getting on that, on, on that beachhead. It damn sure isn't. And we've, we've had those problems before. I mean, it used to be the language problem was between us and you. You know, you had to learn how a Brit speaks and you had to yeah. learn the terms that he yep. uses in, in the military. And God forbid, if it was an Australian, then you were totally screwed. <laughs> but you could, but at least it was English. You know, you could, you yep. could, you could uh, sort of figure each other out. But you don't want to do that kind of crap on the fly. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be on the radio and I don't understand you and you don't understand me because we're, we're you, we've never heard the terms before. That's nonsense. Yeah. Okay. I want to take it back to Vietnam for a minute before we, because I've got so many more questions to go. But I want to go into Vietnam. Um, where was where where did you feel most? I know this is a bit of a weird question, but you mentioned Kaysan, you mentioned Wei Where did you feel most kind of like my time is up? Where where did you think you weren't coming out of? Or, or maybe it's wait. Maybe it's all. Oh wait. Okay. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I. By the time we got to the north side, and uh, I, I just knew in my heart, I, I might as well do what I'm going to do because I'm not making it out of this one. We were we were cut up, and I mean I'm talking about a raggedy ass cut up out, and having to dig them out of holes. And we were finding we were finding North Vietnamese Army soldiers in those holes, you know, shot up on heroin. Um, you could see the cooking spoons mm. and, and all that sort of thing. And they just wait for you to come up and kill them. Um, but not, not all of them are that way. Uh, and, and, and it was such a crapshoot, whether you made it out of there. Uh, it really was. And I'd already been wounded once uh, on the south side, but I ignored it because I thought I would need it on the, on the north side. And, and when I got hit on the north side, then uh, that was it. I mean, I am so lucky to have survived that. I'm, I'm left-handed. This is a war story, so stand by. Um, <laughs> we were trying to cross a street. This is in, inside the citadel on the, on the north side, uh, mid-February mid 68. 
And because I'm left-handed, I could engage an enemy machine gun without exposing myself the way a right-handed shooter does. And so my mission was to trade fire with a North Vietnamese machine gun that was up the street. And while I kept him busy, this squad of Marines that was behind me would, would charge across that, uh, that intersection. And so I'm, I'm all popping off at this guy on my right, and he's firing machine guns and brick dust and everything else is flying around. And, and it's one of these one-on-one -on -one intense firefights. Uh, and I'm changing magazines as quick as I can. And, and, uh, and I, I wasn't watching to my left. And on the second story of a building to my left was a sniper. And he fired at me. And I know he was aiming at my head because he hit the receiver of the rifle, an M16. And the round hit the receiver of the rifle and it blew up. The rifle just blew up and it, and it has plastic furniture, as you know, from handling an M16, plastic pistol grip and plastic foregrip. And that, that plastic shit just exploded. And I mean, it literally, I had, a, I had about a four inch piece of plastic that had, that blew off the stock and went up under my chin and, and pinned my tongue to the roof of my mouth. And, and part of my left thumb was hanging off because the pistol grip had exploded <laughs> and, and I'm walking, I, I just turned around, honest guy, I just turned around and walked back to the rear <laughs> uh, where I knew there was some kind of battalion aid station because, you know, you're, when you, when you get hit in the head, it bleeds all over. It bleeds much worse than it was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it was absolute, I was just in shock and I walked back and I finally found a medical corpsman, you know, who was assembling casualties and, and he threw me up against a wall, you know, and he took a look to trying to assess, you know, triage me, figure out what was wrong with me. And I couldn't talk because I had this damn piece of plastic stuck up in my... So I kept on pointing at the thing. And he finally figured it out and said, oh, oh, you got a piece of plastic stuck in here. And he put his, he put his muddy ass boot on my chest and reached up and got a hold of that plastic and just jerked it. And of course, I spewed blood all over the place. But that was that was me, and and the reason I tell that story is how close you can be. How, you know, if if he'd have, if he'd have held a mic right, he'd have put one right through my temple. You know, it was just, uh, and and way was full of those kind of moments, uh, and and you you saw how how random death and and wounding was. And I think, I think at that point, uh, I had said, it's so random. It's such a crapshoot. I'm just not going to worry about it. And I did uh, right up until it happened. Yeah. It's, um, one of those things I'd say anyone like youngsters listening and stuff is, you know, cause they worry about a lot of these things is it could come down to what, what your enemies had for breakfast. If he's had too much coffee and his hand shaking, uh, it, it could be, you know, it's, it's, there's just so much random chance involved. It doesn't matter. You could be the best soldier that the world has ever seen. You could die in your first couple of minutes um, in combat, or you could be the worst soldier. You could come through it all <laughs> and be just yeah. fine. <laughs> so with the with the with, with Way City, is there any? Because I'm sure there's a lot of them. But is there any one particular moment where your mind goes back to where you just think? Is there any like one of those visions that you get that you just you can just see it and it's like you're back that you're just like back there? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and it, I like to call it my come to Jesus moment. Um, uh, 
I, uh, I, I went into a, into a room um, by myself, which was stupid. I, I threw a grenade in and, uh, and after the grenade went, uh, I, I went in after it. And uh, uh, the damnedest thing, I was, I was looking to my right and on my left, uh, a guy, an MVA soldier literally came out of a closet I mean, he just barged out of the closet with an AK in his hand and he fired, uh, missed me. How? I don't know, because it wasn't any more than about eight feet. And uh, he missed me and I killed him. And the adrenaline is is pumping so hard at that point that I went over and literally emptied a magazine into him. I mean, I, I nailed him with the first two rounds, but I put 18 more into him. Uh, and, you know, you're just shaking with that with that close encounter. And And at the moment that it happened, uh, you know, I, I took a breath and said, okay, okay, I've, I've survived one and then, and then went away uh, because you, you just don't have time to sit and contemplate all these things. But that night I was laying in the wreckage of a, of a house with a couple of other guys. And, and I had this weird, weird experience. Uh, I was off watch and I could sleep. And, uh, you know, I had I had been brought up as a youngster, like a lot of us are, in sort of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, the Ten Commandments are a big deal, and and uh, one of those, underlined, underscored in red, is "Thou shalt not kill." And up until that moment, I had I had mostly shot at fleeting shadows and muzzle flashes in the jungle and that sort of thing. And now, there was no doubt in anybody's military mind that this, me and this guy were were four or five feet apart when he went down and, and it, you know, you tell yourself, well, it was him or me and, and that's the nature of combat and so on and so forth. But there comes a moment if, if you were brought up like I was, there comes a moment when you think, Oh shit, I killed a man today and there's no doubt. And I'm, I'm screwed. I'm doomed. I'm forever doomed by, by what I did. And, and it just scares the shit out of you. I got over it, but occasionally it comes back. <laughs> and that's a religious thing, you think? I guess, I guess. I mean, I've never been overly religious, but I think, I think you know, you grow up going to church and, and going to Sunday school, as, as a lot of us did in those days. And, and these things imprint on you, even if you're not, you know, a, a Bible thumper or a or you know you don't you don't spend every waking hour in prayer or so on. I was never that guy, um, but boy, that moment came, and um, and I and it it was intense, and and I I find it difficult to <laughs> to forget. I mean I understand it now. I understand why it happened, and 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 I've been able to think it through to some extent. But it's still intense. It's still an intense psychological deal. How do you feel towards your the enemy that you fought against? Well, I, I think I think after after a while, say about six months in combat, uh, I came to greatly respect him. It was a, a cautious respect, but there was no doubt in my mind that that this was not you know some some part time rice farmer. This guy was there to fight and he knew what he was doing and he knew how to use his weapons. And so I think there was a, there was a, a, a grudging respect in particular among those of us who fought him on a regular basis. It wasn't empathy or sympathy. 
um, it was just, I get it. You know, he's living out here in the crap the same as I am. He's trying to kill me the same as I'm trying to kill him. So, okay. You know, fair enough. Yeah. And, um, when you look at Vietnam now as a country and like, have you ever been back there? Because I think one of the things you have that a lot of people say of the, the war on terror generation don't have is where you fought is now a tourist trap. <laughs> yeah. Like that's it. That must be insane. Yeah, it is. I, I went back with some of my, uh, my buddies. And, and if you're going back to a combat zone, go with your buddies, go with the survivors. Don't go with strangers. Um, because they're not going to let you get all maudlin and, and slip into the, you know, the psycho babble crapola. They're, they're going to say, Hey, I was there too. Shut up. <laughs> Have a fucking beer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so yes, I, I went back and, and spent about 10 days um, and got to way and we walked the streets where I had been, where I had fought and, uh, and we got to Quezon, Um certainly got to Da Nang and, and environs there. Um, and it was strange. I, I sort of, I looked at it and, and you look, the other side won. I get that. But I think the fact that the war was fought has facilitated the emergence of a, of a really great and prosperous society over there. Yeah. The commies are still in charge and, and, uh, but, but they generally leave the industry alone. Um, and I think if, if, if America had a, had a real influence, uh, in that country, it was probably that, you know, they said, okay, we hate you and, and you're a running dog capitalist and so on and so forth. But, but in the end, we kind of like that. So let's let it happen. I'm just looking at my notes here. I've got so much, so much to ask you. We're running out, um, running a bit short on time. So I'm going to have to jump ahead of huge, a, a huge section now. Okay. How, how did you transition out of the out, out of that vietnam era because you stayed in the military for a long time after that didn't you so clearly like you 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 liked what they'd given you i did i did and i, I had a second combat tour in uh, beirut lebanon in 82 83 so is that when the bombings happened in the in the barracks yes i had left uh, beirut before the bombing about four weeks before it happened but i knew all the guys in the barracks and so yeah I, clearly i liked what i was doing and and what i was seeing but there came a time uh, after Lebanon, uh, and I had about 21, 22 years in the Marine Corps at that time, uh, so I was eligible to retire. And when when the bombing happened in Beirut, uh, and I lost so many friends in that, I kind of figured, you know, it, it may be my time to go because it, it had a real effect on my warrior spirit. I remember I'm, I'm, what, I'm what's called a Mustang. Um, I grew up through the ranks. You know, I, I didn't come out of the service academies or an ROTC commission or anything. I was 13 years as an enlisted man and NCO before I, I got my commission. And I remember on the day that I, I graduated from officer candidate school and, and got my commission, um, I was shaving and I looked myself in the mirror and I said, listen, uh, you're about to uh, get into a situation where you are really uh, going to be responsible for some lives here. And... Um, I, I said, I promise this, on the day that I can't tell my Marine, follow me, it is necessary that we die. On that day, I'll quit because I will have lost my leadership fire. And that day happened um, in 1983 uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. So about a year later, uh, I decided I would retire. And the problem with that was, 
I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with myself. I didn't plan this. I just quit, you know, and, uh, and I, what I knew was that, look, I, I've been shot too many times to want to be a cop on America's mean streets. Um, and, and if I became a cubicle monkey, you know, in some corporate office, hmm. I'd be a suicide in six weeks. Um, and, and if I didn't do anything, I'd become a bar fly down at the, uh, you know, the veterans of foreign <laughs> wars post. And, and I didn't want to do that. So I was looking for something that would, allow, that would challenge me uh, and use that, that creative bone that I have in my body. Uh, I've always been a storyteller. You know, I'm, I'm the guy that can tell you a shaggy dog story around a campfire and, and keep you entertained for 30 minutes with a one-line joke. You know, I, I'm that guy. So uh, I was looking for something that would, that would exercise that. And I had always been a war movie buff. I mean, like all of us who served in uniform, uh, I pay attention to war movies. And, and the common denominator in my experience with war movies up until I got involved was that they pissed me off. And we've all had that experience. You know, you look at that and you say, Jesus, who taught him to wear that beret? It looks like a pizza plate, you know, or, or his, his ribbons are all screwed up or, you know, and... And you, and you can't stay in the story because it pisses you off. It just takes you right out of there. You know, here's a guy in World War II carrying an M16, you know, nonsense. <laughs> That's a common one. And so uh, I said, well, you know, somebody ought to fix that. And when you're a Marine, uh, you, you fix bayonets against the situation. You know, you don't, you don't sit still for this crap. So I decided I'm going to come to L.A. and I'm going to fix this. I'm going to square it away. Well, when you're ignorant, you can do a lot of things that people tell you you can't do, which is the cool thing about being ignorant. And and I certainly was. Um, I had no idea how movies were made or anything else. I just knew that there was a better way. I developed that better way by examining what it was that pissed me off about war movies military movies in general. They didn't have to be about war. And the answer was, the answer which came to me was quite simply, even if you were willing to forgive the uniform gaffes and the, and the weapons handling gaffes and all the nonsense that pisses us veterans off, even if you were willing to forgive that, you've still got none of these guys acting the way we act treating each other the way we treat, talking to each other about the way the way we talk, just like you and I are talking here. I mean, we, we have a shorthand, a language. We get it. Uh, and none, none of the actors I saw portraying us did get it. So my scheme was, okay, I'll fix that. I'll, I'll train them. And then they will have our experience and they will have a, a depth of understanding of how we treat each other and who we are, how we think, how we feel. Uh, what our emotions are and what they aren't. When I when I came to LA, I think I had two hundred and fifty dollars and a and a credit card. <laughs> Not a great stake for going into something like LA. And I, I tried to meet people or find people who who made movies, and I tried to convince them that I had a better idea. I I know how to make a better. And of course, look, yeah, you you spent two decades in uniform. You couldn't possibly have a creative bone in your body. 
you couldn't have possibly have a good idea or you wouldn't have stayed for that long in uniform. So you're clearly a bozo and you need to get the fuck out of the area. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't going well for about a year. I continued to try. Um, I continued to, you know, haunt the sets and haunt where the closest I could get to see if somebody would would listen to me for two minutes. Um, and and I was about to give up when I had uh, I read the trade papers over here. We have trade papers uh, for showbiz, uh, daily variety and uh, uh, backstage and uh, uh, entertainment weekly. And, yeah. and I had I had learned to read those looking for hints and looking for anybody who was wanting to do a war movie. And I saw a little announcement that said a heretofore relatively unknown writer director by the name of Oliver Stone. Um, was was going to do a movie uh, based on his own experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. Well, shit, there it is. You know, if I can if I can get to this guy, uh, he'll get it. I mean, he'll he'll know uh, what I'm talking about. So um, so through through a series of machinations that I really I can't tell you about because the statute of limitations may not have run out, but uh, but I managed to to reach him. And, uh, and I did my little two-minute pitch. I said, look, this is what pisses me off about war movies, and I'm sure it's what pisses you off about war movies. But I know a way to fix it. And, it, and that got me uh, a meeting with him. And, of course, we were absolutely polar opposites. You know, I was John Wayne and he was Ho Chi Minh. I mean, it was just <laughs> that sort of thing. But he, he understood what I was telling him, and he trusted me. And he gave me uh, 33 actors, uh, none of whom were big names at that time, but there was Charlie Sheen and Willem Dafoe and, and um, Forrest Whitaker and, um, and uh, Tom Berenger and so on. And, and we made them stars, by the way. Um, but, but I trained them for three weeks in the mountains of the Philippines, up in the jungles. And I mean, that was the birth of the cap and die method. And, uh, and I beat the snot out of them. And every evening we had a stand down and I, I would answer any question they wanted to know, any extra thing that came in their mind. But prior to that time and after that time, no, you're on watch, you're behind a machine gun, you're out in an OP, you're, and, and they lived like we lived. And when I brought them down out of those jungle mountains three weeks later, they got it. They were who we were at 19 years old in, in Vietnam. And of course, we brought that little $5 million film home, um, and uh, uh, it won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director for Oliver, who was gracious enough to recognize me at the Academy Awards um, as a, a huge asset in the making of the film. And, and at that point, uh, everybody wanted me. Nobody was ignoring me and not wanting to listen to my pitch. So that's... That's the shaggy dog story. That's that's how it all came about, and and it's been onward and upward since then. I we looked at it the other day, and I think we've done about fifty-one movies and television projects, um, and that's a lot. And we have we have become the the uh, the premier military advisor uh, outfit in Hollywood. Worked all over the world, done all kinds of movies. I mean. We say we'll do everything from Star Wars to the Peloponnesian Wars, and we've done it. We did Alexander, which was Ancient Grace, and we did uh, Starship Troopers. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. 
so uh you know it's uh, i guess i guess that's uh ask another question because that's all i can remember to say well so one of the things i really uh, wanted to ask you is um and i know i'm putting you on the spot but what is your favorite war movie? Because I'll put my hand up and say now that I think Platoon is probably fa- my favorite because it doesn't have the kind of, even though there is, obviously, there's always a triumph in these films about comradeship, which is, I think, I think Platoon is, it's, you know, the relationship between um, Charlie and uh, or um, Chris and his, you know, his kind of squad mates. There's a triumph in there without necessarily being a, a, the glory that you used to see in movies, and it's. I just love the fact that it's just so fucking down and dirty, and no one knows what's going on. And like, I love that about the movie. Where do do you have a favorite one? And you don't it. You don't have to say if you if you don't want to. If he'll put you on the spot, I, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for uh, Platoon because it launched my career, uh, both as a, as an advisor and as an actor, and. I, I will always love the miniseries uh, Band of Brothers. I will always love Saving Private Ryan and the Pacific. Mm. But those are movies that I worked on. So let me let me take myself out of that stable. I'll pull that horse out of the stable here. It, one of my absolute favorite war movies is a little film uh, done by uh, Sam Fuller by the name of Steel Helmet. It's about Korea, uh, and it is an absolute acting tour de force. It is full of guys who know who we are and how we act and how we relate. Um, it's cheesy in some areas because I think he made it for $250,000. Um, but in my view, and, and Sam Fuller was uh, himself uh, a combat veteran of World War II with the 1st uh, Infantry Division. Uh, so he made he made this little film called Steel Helmet, which I dearly love. Uh, so excluding all of the stuff I did, uh, I've got to say um, that that's, that's my favorite. You know what's a testament? I'll say this, uh, Dale. A testament to you is that if you take out the, the war movies that you worked it on, it's very hard to pick a great one. <laughs> Because <laughs> and they so they do have you they do have you in common and it's you you are almost the kind of like you you've probably got a lot to answer for in in, in getting people to join up to the military and the, and the war on terror because I remember I remember watching uh, Platoon and, and Band of Brothers when it came out I tell you what though I don't think any other war movie slash TV show has ever affected me like the Pacific did I'd read the books about seeing. Those like the airfield scene. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and we shot that in Australia of all places. But um, the the thing that, that amazes me, uh, you know, I've I've sort of become the World War Two movie guru, and I'm always getting invited over to uh, Normandy uh, to do World War Two things or to the Pacific to to you know to the Punch Bowl Cemetery in Hawaii, and 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 people recognize me because I've done all these films. Um, and 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 what 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 never ceases to amaze me is I was I was standing in Saint Mariglaise um, in in Normandy France the Brits will all know where that is and uh, and the eighty second Airborne was over there to do a jump on uh, on D Day anniversary or something and I was literally mobbed by these young soldiers um, and I I think half of them told me that the reason 
they were in the United States Army today is because of Band of Brothers. And the other half said it was because of saving Private Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a lot of Rangers and Airborne guys who are, especially in those kind of uh, specialities, you know, who went down that that down that path. Yeah. What, uh, war films aside, who, who, um, what 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 are some of your favorite just movies in in general? Like for either for the entertainment point of view, or, or like from someone from someone that's worked in the industry as someone who like appreciates a well put together movie. I like a lot of them, you know, and and I'm a huge consumer, of course, you know, because uh, because I I'm in the business. Um, but I I like comedies. I like to I like. A film that tickles me, and uh, you know, I, of all things, it, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure just tickles the shit out of me for for some reason, and uh, and 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 some of the spooks I've seen are just marvelous. Uh, I guess I like so many of them. Guess I I don't know what uh, I don't know what I tell you. I mean, I, I love the classics. Um, you know, the Maltese Falcon is is absolutely great. Um, I love Casablanca. Um, the Sahara. Did, did uh, you uh, did you get cast to do the Hot Shots boot camp? Was there with the Charlie Sheen? Was it? <laughs> that's a great spoof. No, but 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 in but in large measure, uh, they based. Uh, if you saw Tropic Thunder, um, they based a lot of the characters on me, and I, and I knew they were going to do it, so I just laughed about it. I'll um, if I ever get a comedy made, then I'll I'll, I'll be in touch about that one. Uh, finger, fingers crossed. All right, I'm cast. Good deal. Um, right, I I, I want to get. So uh, as a an I want to get some author to author talk going on uh, in here okay, before sure. we before before we finish up. Um, you know you um you wrote a book about your time in um Hui, but like you fit you know you put a fictional narrative, um and then you know I I imagine you used that did you to kind of was it almost like organizing your thoughts, bringing in all these things that you'd seen and giving it some kind of almost structure in your mind. Yeah. Um, it was, and, and that's a, a fairly good uh, description of it. Um, it's a book called Run Between the Raindrops, and that title comes from what a corpsman, uh, a medical corpsman actually told me in way. He said, listen, trying to get through this bastard without getting killed or, or shot up is like trying to run through the raindrops without getting wet. Um, and so I, that stuck in my mind, and, and I, I used it. But it was it was like that, you know. I tried to organize the fight, and and then use that as a basic structure. But um, but what I wanted to focus on, what I thought was important about about in writing about way, uh, were the surreal images. I mean, in and, and, and surreal is exactly the right word. Um, it was so weird and so odd and so full of moments that that. Other combat veterans, absolutely, people who hadn't fought, you know, in a in a house to house thing or close quarters, uh, wouldn't recognize. And I wanted those to be in there. I wanted the book to be special like that. Um, and I, I think it was. Uh, there's now an author's. I went back, uh, shit, twenty five years later, I guess, and 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 rewrote some things that I thought improved. And there's an author's uh, preferred edition out there now. But I look. Uh, I think writing for guys like us is a catharsis, and I think it's healthy. I think it uh, it's a good thing to do. It's a good way to cope with uh, stress. Um, but you got to have a skill at it. I mean, you got to be facile with words. You have to have some education. 
you can't be Wee Willie the Wanker who can barely speak English. I mean, you just can't be that guy. Um, or or it's or it's all masturbation. <laughs> so if if you intend to tell a story, if you intend to write it for people to read rather than just because it feels good to see your name on it, you know, then then you've got to become facile with the language. You've got to become a good storyteller. Uh, and there are way, way too many writers today who are not good storytellers. So, so I mean, you, you know the drill. Uh, if, if you're really a writer, you can't not write. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's, it's, one of those, the, um, it's one of the things that you're saying is I think people will, like, look, you don't end up on a battlefield without any training. And it should be the same with books. I get people messaging me all the time. I'm sure you have it. How do I get an agent? Have you written the book? If you haven't written the book, maybe write the fucking book first. Is the <laughs> is the first is the first step? But also, how many like have you got your hands on every? If you want to write a war memoir, how, how many war memoirs have you read? If it's two, you might want to go and read another fifty, and then read another fifty. You know, and um, and I don't think people, I I and you know. I, you're in a shark tank environment out there in Hollywood, which is, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of doors closed in your face for certain reasons. I've heard you say yourself, and I think it's a great explanation why, is there's a lot of money there and a, a people want to keep that money to themselves. And that's a great way of looking at it. That's right. With books, there's nothing stopping anybody out there that puts a work in. There's nothing stopping you getting, you, you know, book published or self-publishing your books. You can put your book out there. So it's very different to entertainment you know the screen entertainment in that sense but you still have to do the work you you do but look um you also need um an editor and and you need you need somebody that's going to um publish it uh, publicize it a bit you know get it out there among the veteran sites and so on and so forth and the problem right now is self-publishing has become so easy that it's just full of absolute dog shit. <laughs> I mean, there's stuff out there that you can't read it so bad. And yet, you know, it's published for $6 or $12. Uh, and, you know, you can order it from the author. And he'll sign it, assuming he can sign his name. You know, it's just, <laughs> there's crap out there. And that is a blessing and a curse, the old two-edged sword of, of, the, uh, of the internet um, or social media in general. So I'm I'm a little I'm a little leery. I mean, look, I started my own publishing company, uh, Warriors Publishing Group, um, but we're we are a pro offset. I mean, if you can't write, don't bother. And and we uh, we specialize in veterans stories and and war story, war books, um, but but you better be able to write, and because we're able to edit, and we'll we'll throw it out in a minute. And the neat thing is. Uh, you, you build a reputation outside of New York, and, and New York publishing is virtually dead, but except for nonfiction and political books. But if if you are able to write, and and you know the language, and you know how to use it, and you know how to elicit emotion with the use of the, of that of that language, uh, you're in great shape. And and you're right in saying that uh, you can you can get it out there. And you're also right in saying if you haven't read 150 war books and you want to write a war book, then you're way short of the goal, pal. Yeah, I mean that that is the the minimum standard, you know. When I'm we're saying that, yeah. Um, and I, I I think you're right. Like it's you said, like you said, it's you you hit the nail on the head. There is a double edge. It's double edged sword. Um, just because it's easy to publish a self published book doesn't mean that that's what you should do. There's a reason that gatekeepers 
exist in a lot of these things. And I, 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 I've actually started to split my publishing now. I do some self-published. I do some with with publishers, and uh, it is something you you have to you come up against is because people have these preconceived notions about expecting the standards to be lower. Um, so for you know anybody coming in. Um, if they're approaching somebody like yourself with a work, just because it's veteran to veteran doesn't mean you get to come in with a sloppy, you know, with a sloppy piece of shit. Exactly right. You know, we will not publish crap. And, uh, and, and when we, when we get a good one, uh, we publicize the hell out of it. And we, you know, my high profile and social media helps and I'll endorse it and, uh, and talk about it and review it. And that gets picked up and on and on and on. So it's doable. But, you, but you've got to watch the clutter. There's crap out there. There's so much crap out there that there are guys like you and me in the veteran community say, hey, you know, I read it and then tell me about it. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to mess with it anymore. Dale, you've, you've been out in Hollywood for a while now. I think Platoon was the early 80s. Yeah, you just raise your, just for people, because we're, uh, we're not, Dale just raised his eyebrows. <laughs> um, you've been out there for a good while. Um you know, I think it's fair to say you know, like you've got one of these. You're one of these rare, very rare people. Probably, to be honest, one of the only ones with the amount of experience that you have who knows the military world as well as you do. And now you've you know you've been in the belly of the beast for in Hollywood for a long time. I have. What's what do you think of Hollywood? How do you like what what what? That must be so bizarre for you being in the in the guts of this machine and seeing all of this, considering as well so much the experiences you've had. Look, Holly, Hollywood writ large um, is a business. There's a reason they call it show business. You know, emphasis on the second word. Um, and as you as you pointed out uh, so accurately earlier, uh, there's a piss pot full of money and they don't want to share that money. That's one of the reasons it's so hard to break into the business, regardless of what you're doing. And in large measure, because of that exclusivity, that that closed shop sort of attitude, uh, Hollywood can be cruel. It can be vicious. Uh, it can eat young men and women alive, young men and women who want just want to have a good time and tell a story and help, you know, get a piece of art work out there. It can eat them alive. It can just literally destroy their spirit. And that's a shame. On the other hand, there are, there are good storytellers who will forgive practically anything if you can assist them, if you can help them. So it, there's, it's a, there's a synergistic nature. I wish that it didn't cost what it costs <laughs> um, to make movies these days, because we'd all be better off if that were the case. And now, God knows, with the dreaded Rona uh, hanging all over the world, um, mm. we're going to see budgets for pictures, which were already astronomical. You know, $180 million, please, to see a Spider-Man fly through. Come on. Mm. But at any rate, uh, we're now going to see a, like a 30% rise in those budgets just because, uh, you know, we're a litigious society and everybody's worried that somebody's going to catch the dreaded Rona and sue them. Uh, so we've, we've got these uh, concerns going on and it's not good for the business. Um, it's going to be, it's going to make the business even more exclusive. Uh, we're going to see fewer films made uh, that should be made. Uh, we're, we're going to see a plethora of films in the next year or two uh, where there's one actor and a 
and a green screen and everything else is computer generated imagery. And that's a comic book. That's a video game. Um, that's, that's not screen drama. Um, and what disappoints, to, to return to your origin of your question, what disappoints me about Hollywood is that they're unwilling um, to address these issues, to say, you know, uh, maybe we ought to take, maybe we ought to stop being stupid. And maybe we ought to take a little chance. We're in an art here. We're not, we, we want to tell stories and create wonderful entertainment. Uh, is there a risk in that? Sure, there's a risk in that. But there's more than just a monetary risk. Um, you, need to, you need to jump off the cliff every once in a while, just see if there's water down there. But you, you mentioned earlier, like movies like The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and stuff. If you went and pitched those movies now, you'd be told to get the fuck out. Like yes. they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be commissioning those movies. Oh yeah. Casablanca with, you know, uh, 50 people gathered in a nightclub. But I don't think so. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and, and I don't know how long it's going to take. I mean, look, the guilds and the unions here in, in uh, Hollywood are, are pretty brutal. Um, and, and I don't know how long it's going to take, uh, for them and, uh, all of the, you know, all of the guilds, um, the screen actors guild and the directors guild and the writers guild and the, uh, international alliance of theatrical stage employees and yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't know how it's going to take them to figure out mm. how we get this done. Um, how we can get back to storytelling how we can how we can get people into theaters uh, and you know stop making us slaves to the boob tube and the, and the and the cell phone and the and the uh, and the computers uh, because movies aren't made for that format yeah uh, they're made as a communal shared experience big huge spectacular and and until we get back there uh, I don't know what's going to happen I think I think we're going to have a huge cultural change, really do, and it has to do with how we uh, how we consume our entertainment, mm. uh, sports, and everything. And and the important thing is that that consumption uh, and our anxiousness to consume really influences opinions and who we are and what we are, even with fiction and, and entertainment television and entertainment movies. Uh, it has, it's not only a reflection of our societies, but in some ways it, it, it leads us into ways of thinking and, uh, yes, and ways of feeling about certain things, right or wrong, uh, for, for good or for ill. Oh, yeah. And, and when, you, when you rip that away or when you change that, uh, who knows what's going to happen? I don't, uh, but I'm, I'm leery of it. I'm not sure it's a good deal. I'm with you, Dale, 100%. I'm um, very, um, I'm a concerned citizen at the moment, put it that way, about um, a, about a lot of things that are going on. And I think, like we said earlier in the podcast, a lot of that comes from seeing the best of human nature and seeing the worst of human nature. And I tend to, um, I tend to bet usually that people default to bad behavior rather than than good good behavior. So I'm 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 a, I'm I'm cautious. Um, but you know what, the world has survived worse i'm sure it has but the neat thing and and the lesson to be learned here is that a guy like you has a perspective on it because as you said you've seen the worst and the best um and so you can make a, an informed judgment you can say okay 
uh, that, that guy's an asshole and fine, let him be an asshole because society survives. Um, but there are those out there without that experience, without that perspective, who, who let it drive them absolutely insane. And we see it on our streets in London and Nottingham and LA and New York and on and on. And, on. and it's why, like we said earlier, the, um, the national service would, I just, I generally believe I'm not saying not necessarily when the military, but of some sort would alleviate a lot of these problems. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about there before we uh, wrap up, because we've already gone over and I appreciate you giving us so much time is uh, we, I mentioned to you earlier that I was missing LA and you said that <laughs> must be crazy. How do how do you find living in LA? Because I said to you, I feel like it's, it's like having a crazy girlfriend, which is kind of like exciting, but at the same time, sometimes you want to strangle her. <laughs> that's, that's a classic way to talk about it. Because uh, look, I've, I've lived out here about 35 years now. This little house that you see, uh, I bought sh- shortly after I retired from the Marine Corps. And it's a San Fernando Valley little ranch place. Nothing pretentious. Um, There's so many souvenirs in it that the kids call it the Imperial War Museum. <laughs> I can vouch but, for that. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> fortunately, my wife likes it. So I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's my, my, my bedroom's the same. But L.A. is... Uh, it has turned into the land of fruits and nuts. It really has. I mean, I, I cannot, I cannot tolerate um, the the way that what's being done with my tax money, and I pay a lot of it. Uh, I can't tolerate the way uh, areas are being governed here. Uh, I don't like I don't like the uninformed opinions of of uh, people that that congregate in Southern California. And so uh, I bought a house uh, down in Texas, the great straight state of Texas, oh, uh, just south of the capital in Austin in what's called the Texas Hill Country. And it's a great old, beautifully rambling old uh, Texas uh, house that was built in 1915. And, uh, and I'm just waiting. I've, I've got a few little chores to, to accomplish uh, here in L.A., uh, including getting a new war movie made. Uh, and, then, and then I'm gone. I just, I'm gone. The, the neat thing about living in the societies that we do, that you live in and I live in, um, if it pisses us off, all we got to do is pull up anchor and move. Uh, and a lot of people are doing that to Austin right now from California. One of the things that I've, I've that I, I loved about LA is that I could, you know, you were very gracious, gave me some time to come see you when I was in LA. Yeah. That's what I love about it is there's a congregation of people who are on this mission to get shit done. And I love that. But I got to be honest with you, Dale, when the whole, uh, when the whole Corona thing happened and I was like, right, let me, let me get this straight. They'll take half your paycheck but you're not allowed to make the decision to go to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> you can fuck off. Yeah. I'm, I, and that, yes. and, 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 and that, and that, that made me change my desire to want to live in California. I'll still love visiting, but I don't want to live there. anymore. Hey, listen, come see me anytime, but come see me in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Listen, listen, I get it, man. Um, I absolutely get what you're saying. And it, and triggers like that are being tripped all over the state of California. Listen, we're losing the tax base. The, the big money guys uh, saying, you know, see, I can, I can be the big money guy in Colorado Springs or I can be the big money guy in Kansas City. And, uh, and, and you know, hopefully the, they'll learn their lesson, but uh, who knows? We'll see. I hope so. Uh, Dale, thanks so much for giving us the time today. This is absolutely flown by. I've enjoyed it so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, and, and the neat thing is the, the Beeb, 
is actually giving you some time on the airwaves. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, so yeah. it, I'm, I'm happy to help you anytime, buddy. Thanks. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Um, I don't like to pick favorites, but that might be one of my favorite podcasts that we've done. I really loved that. The time absolutely flew by. Dale, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I, I really enjoyed that. And I, I appreciate um, everything that you do for promoting promoting the veteran way of lifestyle, the warrior brotherhood. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, sir. Um, guys, what can I say? Brilliant episode. Um, we're going to be back next week with another. In fact, we have a couple of episodes for you next week. They're coming thick and fast. We have um, we have guests on from the U.S. Navy. We have a U.S. Navy SEAL coming on. And Navy SEALs are all coming out of the woodwork. Now we've had the <laughs> now we've had the first couple on the on the show. Uh, who else do we have next week? Oh God, we got two Navy SEALs on next week. Right, we got Navy SEALs all over the place. If Navy SEALs are your thing, Veteran State of Mind is the place to be next week. All right, we got more Navy SEALs here than we have at a Hollywood extravaganza. Right. So uh, join us join us for that, guys. Please go and follow uh, Captain Die on social media. I'll tag him up and everything. Please check out uh, his books. Support our guests like they have supported us by giving up their time. Thank you so much to the Royal British Legion for making this possible. Thank you to Combat Fuel for giving me some juicy pumps in my arms. Guys, I love you so much. I'll catch you next time. Love you, bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout teaser. You told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault and yeah I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter yeah I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go now live your life and spread your wings And yeah you put on quite a show and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted, and you should feel ashamed. You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for, a reason for us all to live and something we could fight for. I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn, but no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle. Yeah, life's hard, I know that. Still wouldn't change shit. I wouldn't go back. Yeah, I wouldn't go back. Feelings I hold back. Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows